Welcome to a swift kick in the soul, episode two. We'll be talking about high jumpers and heretics. With me, as always, is Hillel Nori. I'm Marshall Coates, and let's get into it. Excellent. All right. So, I want to tell you a story. A story about somebody I call a spiritual hero for me. Mm. A hero in the sense that it's somebody who I recognize something exceptional in them, and, and I want I want to be like that. Yeah. Uh, in some way. Um, last week, we talked about races and running races. Uh, so I thought we would continue in the track and field vein. Of course. And, um, <laughs> but I promise not every episode is going to be about track and field. Okay. Um, we're going to move on to the uh, pole vault at some point, right? Okay, great. <laughs> uh, today, we're going to talk about the high jump. All right. Um, I don't know if you know a lot about the high jump, but the modern high jump in the Olympics has a, a really interesting history, and one of its great names is a spiritual hero of mine, a guy named Dick Fosbury. Mm. Uh, maybe you don't know that name. Not everybody does. But Dick Fosbury completely changed the high jump. In the 1960s, in the Summer Olympics in Mexico, um, is when Dick Fosbury was a competitor for the United States as an Olympic athlete. Okay. Uh, he had uh, run track and field in uh, college and in high school, uh, followed the track of most Olympic athletes, and was at the top of his game in the high jump. Now, uh, in order to understand the story, you kind of have to know a little bit about the high jump. So when you, before Dick Fosbury, if you ran the high jump, uh, you'd r- run up to the bar, place your inside foot, on the ground, leap off that inside foot and roll your outside foot up over the bar along with your body and land on that outside foot first on the other side of the bar. This is the accepted method. This is what people do. Correct. Okay. That was known as the roll. The roll, okay. Right. The other way of doing it was a scissors kick huh. where, again, you plant the inside foot, throw your outside foot up and scissor your inside foot up over the bar <laughs> And, you know, scissor again, landing on the other side of the bar. Now, part of the reason they did that was because, well, that was the traditional way of doing it. Everybody did one of those two methods. Mm, Gotcha. Either the scissor kick or the roll. And then something changed. Something that really had nothing to do with the athletes themselves or their technique. But instead of just a sand pit on the other side of the high jump bar... They started in high school and in college to protect the athletes, putting big foam pits, foam mattresses on the other side of the bar so that when you landed, you didn't twist your ankle or hurt yourself in some way. It was a protective measure. But really that, that unintentional consequence of that change was that it allowed Dick Fosbury to do something different. Everybody else threw their legs over the bar first Mm. and their body Second, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Dick Fosbury did the opposite. Dick Fosbury okay. did the opposite. <laughs> okay. Instead of planting his inside foot, he plants his outside foot and pushes up. And instead of throwing his legs over first, he puts his head over first. Hmm. And then his shoulder twisting around like a corkscrew so that his backside is to the bar. 
Okay. And then just when his legs are about to hit the bar, he flops <laughs> his legs up in the air and lands, boom, on his back on the mattress. It's the jumping salmon. It's the Fosbury flop. It's okay. It's the, that's what it's called? It's called the Fosbury flop. Yeah, and when he did it, it was, uh, it was an insult. Oh. They were like, ha, 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 Fosbury, you know, he flops around like a fish. Okay. Right? It could be taken that way. So, however, it allowed him to jump not just a little higher and not just higher than his own best with one of the other traditional methods, but significantly higher. Mm. And that year, he won the gold medal in uh, the Summer Olympics in the high jump by a, a substantial margin. Now, of course, when you do that, everybody wants to know about it. If you're in the high jump game, well, your game just changed. Yeah. And uh, everybody wanted to sort of analyze. And there's a tremendous amount of scientific analysis of the Fosbury flop and how and why it is vastly superior. And if you watch today in the Olympics for the high jump, I don't know anybody who does any other way. There was a, a little bit of retention of tradition in the next couple of Olympics, but within a very short period of time, almost everybody does exactly what he did in some way, and uh, the, the records reflect the radical improvement in ability. Oh, it's working for the other athletes as well. That's correct. Wow. He, he, he was a game changer in that way. An innovator. Mm. Um, now, uh, maybe none of that seems all that spiritual, right? <laughs> it, it's really, um, it's a remarkable story. And uh, all of his ability to put up with the mockery, uh, to take a risk. Uh, he actually, you know, hurt himself a couple of times. He had some compressed discs. And um, it wasn't a, a smooth, straight, easy ride from traditional to innovative revolutionary. Mm. Um, so I don't want to paint that kind of picture. Um, but his ability to see through and to understand that there could be a really a different way, a radically different way, is, I believe, uh, rooted in the fact that he really understood the event very deeply before he innovated it. Right. Um, and uh, here's where I, I want to talk about why he's a spiritual hero for me. Because... We could call him an innovator, or we could call him a game changer. Those are words that are thrown around a lot, and they're okay, but they're not really what I mean. Hmm. Um, I'm going to call him a heretic, <laughs> okay. and I'm going to say it as a compliment to him. Uh, a heretic is somebody who, who knows the tradition. They're, they're not uh, ignorant. Mm. They understand it very, very deeply. Um, in this way, uh, Fosbury didn't just walk up in high school and say, hey, I have a new way of doing it, and I'm just going to learn the new way and not learn the traditional way. Mm -hmm. Great innovators are deeply steeped in their tradition. Uh, you can think about artists and musicians in this way, people who change the nature of culture and music. Picasso yeah. was not... Picasso until he was Picasso. Right. Uh, and neither was Dick Fosbury. Mm. And neither are the other, maybe more traditional spiritual heroes for me. People who were 
mentors and heroes of mine, specifically in their role as spiritual leaders, hmm. uh, who innovated within the tradition. It's not about replacing. Right. Fosbury didn't replace the sport. He grew. He grew out of it. He made it his own. Hmm. He found something within that resonated with the tradition, and yet, by understanding it, changed it. And once, once you experience and know that change, he, he couldn't go back. He's mm. like, I know I can jump higher this way. Yeah. I cannot go back. The goal of my tradition is to you know, leave the earth <laughs> and jump as high as you can. It's very aspirational, the high jump. Indeed. Um, it, it's literally to jump higher. <laughs> so anyone who's steeped in their tradition wants to reach the highest heights of its intention and its goals for you in your personal and spiritual life. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a younger rabbi, I, I had a chance to meet a, a number of much more senior rabbis, uh, 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 most of whom are no longer living, who had a foot in the old world. They were European-born. They were rooted in deep, old, traditional, pre-modern Jewish expression. Okay. They learned in traditional Jewish schools. And they learned in that kind of deeply steeped parochial environment. Mm. And then they bridged the ocean and they bridged history and they stepped into America and they didn't isolate or insulate themselves. They experienced the new open world. Yeah, very important. And it's like the foam mattress. Suddenly there's another environment that demands something new of me. Right. And they had, I think, the courage, they had the foresight, the clarity, the focus, the willingness, the adventurousness. Maybe they were just forced to do so by the story of their life. Mm. But they embraced what was new, and they, they took the old and they made it their own. And one of the things they all said in lessons about how to become a spiritual leader is their experience is kind of unique because they're so deeply steeped in it. Right. Uh, I, I'm not steeped in it in that way. I'm one step removed. And I become the next chain in That's the right. tradition. Yeah. Um, and I learn from them. They become a part of the tradition which I inherit. Uh, heretics don't replace their tradition. And they don't really innovate. Do they evolve it? They inherit. They receive the transmission of that tradition and embody it. They've lived it deeply already. And then they make it their own. Mm. They develop it. They develop it. They okay. expand. They stand on the shoulders. They, they look a little bit further ahead. Yeah. But they are so deeply rooted in the experience of the previous generations and of the uh, older traditions. Uh, one of these guys was on a conference uh, many, many years ago with young rabbis. 
and uh, we were doing an exercise where we talked about how we were envious of different denominations and different schools of thought. Rather than the usual thing, which is to pat yourself on the back and say, our movement is the best yeah. movement, and my denomination is the best denomination, right. and all those others, while acceptable, are inferior it, to me. It's, it, it happens often. <laughs> yes. Honestly. It's, it's one of our um, uh, biggest challenges. Indeed. Um, anyways, we were doing the opposite. Mm. We were saying, what are we envious of? What does the other guy do better than we do? And we were reflecting on things which we're embarrassed about in our own movement, mm. things which we wish we didn't do the way we did them. So we turned that exercise on its head. And it's very helpful, really, when you're young and building bridges with people of different denominations to l let loose a little of your own judgmentalism of the other and maybe learn something from them. Definitely. So here's what one of them said, one of these revolutionaries steeped in the old world. He said, my followers, they don't know what I know. They don't know what I left. They don't understand the difficulty which I had to go through to create something different and new. Mm. They won't be called heretics, but I was called heretic. Mm. Um, and in that way, they don't know enough. They don't know enough to be different, to be innovators. Uh, and, and he reflected on it as, as an inherent problem. There wasn't something he could necessarily do about it. It's a generational problem. Yeah. And if you think about uh, what has become traditional religious and spiritual practice, whatever the denomination, whatever the religion, traditional Buddhism, traditional Christianity, traditional Judaism— traditional Islam, it doesn't really matter. The uh, originator of those traditions, the revolutionary, the prophet, the creator of, uh, uh, of the, 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 the earthly-bound tradition of it, mm. uh, we do not reflect them in our current practice. Yeah, no. They would think what we do is strange. <laughs> if Buddha showed up at a Buddhist temple, he would think it was odd. Hmm. He didn't have a Buddhist temple. Right. He was the, he was the first one. Right. He was the first one. So um, how do you make it your own? How do, how? That's really the challenge. Whatever the, the enterprise, whatever the art, whatever the practice, how do you take a deeply rooted tradition that somebody else created and make it your own? I guess we're going to talk about that. That's what we're going to talk okay, about. Okay, great. Yeah. So in order to do that, you, you have to come into synagogue. Um, traditional Jewish prayer is uh, prayed out of a traditional prayer book. Uh, for more than a thousand years, much more, uh, traditional Jews have prayed in Hebrew primarily out of a written prayer book. Okay. Uh, an organized series of psalms and other non-biblical literature that reflects the deep roots of early rabbinic Judaism mm. back in the time of Jesus in the first century. It's called a siddur, oh. an, an order. And different days have slightly different orders. Mm. But on a given day, if it's the same as any other given day, 
you follow the order as written in the Siddur, and you pray the traditional words of this prayer book. No improvisation? Very little improvisation. Okay. There's some room for personalizing, but essentially recitation. Gotcha. Of somebody else's words. Hmm. It's not spontaneous. Not, right. Um, it is written prayer, organized prayer, and repetitive. I don't want to praise it or criticize it. I just really want to share with you one of the most common things I heard of 30 years of teaching people how to access the Siddur. Okay. It doesn't speak to me. Mm. I read the English. I understand the words. I struggled with the ideas. I did what you said to do in class and from your sermons. And... It doesn't speak to me. Mm. First of all, it's in Hebrew. <laughs> so you have to know Hebrew, which, you know, to be this kind of Jew, you have to know Hebrew. Yeah. But secondly, they thought this was written by ancient people struggling with ancient things, not modern people struggling with modern things. It doesn't speak to my family situation, to my social and cultural situation, to my understanding of Western thought and democracy. Mm. to my college education, and all of those things. So how am I supposed to access that? You want me to jump higher? I say, give me a different prayer book. <laughs> so I heard that a lot. Yeah. And I, I took it pretty seriously. I thought, how do you innovate? How do you make it your own? And I, I had to give people an answer that they often didn't want to hear. Mm. which was, I said, you have to go deeper. You have to own the material. The prayer book does not have to justify itself to you. Right. I'm sorry. You're very, very important. But this is the accumulated spiritual genius of your people over a thousand years. Mm. So don't pretend like you know something they don't know. Right. It doesn't have to prove itself to you. Now, having said that, that's not really an argument for you to engage deeper. But I'm going to say, if you really want to make it your own, if you want to be a master of traditional Jewish prayer, and you want to be able to create something new for yourself, a personal practice which may be different and which you do own, which you do feel speaks to you, then you must first learn to jump the other way, mm -hmm. the traditional way. Don't run away from it. Embrace it more deeply. Let go for a moment of your desire to have it reflect you and to have it speak to you. Just get better at it. <laughs> Don't worry for a minute if it speaks to you. Now, not all heretics are heroes, okay? Not all that doesn't always work. Right. I'm not pretending it does. But if you do that, if you set aside the ego of it and you embrace the tradition, knowing that you're doing it with a little of that heretic spirit, <laughs> I'm looking for a way to make it my own. I want to inherit it. Inherit. That's cool. Truly inherit it so that I can honestly say, I know it. 
I'm good at it. And now I'm going to make it my own. Right. And change it. I think us heretics, we, we're mostly concerned about it working for us. It's very personal. Mm. It's not, I want to revolutionize the world. I don't think Buddha sat down and said, I want to create Buddhism. Yeah. I think they were responding to their immediate environment, those greats, the revolu- what, you know, we would say are now the pillars of established traditional religious practices. These people are humans after all. Right, they were humans and they, and they were responding to their own age and to what was going on around them in yeah. a revolutionary way. Mm. Um, they didn't set out to become the founders of a religion still around today. Yeah. So most people who engage in this way, they, they, they just want to have it make sense to them. They want it to speak to them. They want to be masters. They want to own it and for it to feel like they made it their own mm. and that they are therefore capable of transmitting to a new generation something meaningful to them. Yeah. Uh, you know, we all want to be Dick Fosbury <laughs> and like known for all of history as the one who made it different and better and everyone does it like they did it. Yeah. Um, But you don't have to do that. That's really not what it's about. It's about making it your own, about being able to inherit a tradition, to master it as best you can so that you can now add what you have, something truly unique, yeah, yeah, I suppose you to know where it can go, you have to know what's what what there is left to do. You have to know where the old limit stops. You have to know where the holes are. Yes, and you it can't be a superficial knowledge. Right. It it better to be a heretic than an ignoramus. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you yeah, I, I, at least I know. I know what's true and what's not. I know where I am and where I stand and what it's like. I I I did that. I tried that. I was there. I, I went through that experience. That that's undeniable. Um, you can't you 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 can't go back once you change in that way. Mm. Look, I'll, I'll just speak with you very personally. I, I struggled with this. I was deeply deeply rooted in traditional Jewish practice. I was a a daily uh, I, I had daily ritual prayer with all of the traditional garb, mm. I covered my head all the time. Um, I rarely, if ever, varied from the traditional text. In fact, I was deeply focused on understanding it in, in its greatest minutia mm. so that I could transmit it well as a teacher and so that I could be successful in my own prayer life. Mm. Um, I still love doing it, <laughs> but I do not do it every day. I do not do it in the way that I used to do it. It's been, in some ways, not replaced, but transformed into different practices. My taekwondo practice, uh, my musical and artistic creative efforts. Well, while we're speaking personally, do you mind talking about what in your life was the spark of that want for change or the, the first step into the, the, the heretical? Well... Sure, yeah. I 
it's not easy to pinpoint a moment. Mm. Um, I, I think it mostly began with people who I met who were also struggling with these same things, even as they were in different traditions slightly from me. Mm. Uh, and I started to realize I have more in common with them than I do with the people of my own group. Interesting. And uh, I, I learned from them that what I was going through wasn't so unique and that it was uh, a part of a, of a transformation. Mm. Uh, it was painful. Some of it was you know, traumatic where I felt burned by previous experience. Like, gee, uh, being a professional in this line of work uh, kind of ruined it for me. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, and uh, that's a longer conversation, I guess, but it, it, it I think you, you understand what I'm saying. I, I have experienced and, a similar thing. Yes. Yeah, so I, um, uh, I wanted some distance from that. Mm. I, I felt like not everything about traditional Jewish prayer and synagogue life is great. <gasps> you know, as a Ooh. professional, you can't <laughs> so much say that all the time because you're trying to encourage people to come and, and emphasize the things that are positive, the connections they can make. Sure. It's only logical. But I, I, I let go of that, and I, I embraced other practices very deeply, a real physical, martial spirituality right. that was also transformative and was actually very similar to my uh, recitation prayer practice in mm. many ways. The underlying dynamics of how I learned Taekwondo, how I became better at it, mm. were very similar to the underlying dynamics of my prayer life. Yeah. That was both a bizarre transformation, but also a very successful natural one. Sure. Um, I, I found a few ways to maintain a personal, very traditional Jewish life that were really essential to me, n not leaving the tradition, not replacing the tradition. I was able to become the rabbi of a smaller congregation. Mm. I was able to have a very personal family Jewish life, which I had really not had as a professional where you're more in the, in the fishbowl. Sure, I can understand that. So I think it was a number of different things that it, it, took, it took time. To, to go through that transformation. Now I look back at it, I see it as, as more of a, 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 a unified phase of life. But yeah. it was really a number of different things that lined up, um, some of which were in my control and many of which were not. Yeah, that's, that's a beautiful thing, uh, sort of being able to listen, listen in to the things that aren't in your control, yeah. having an ear to the outside world and, in, and a root in the tradition you came from. Yes, yes, being, and being willing to uh, let go. Yeah, like letting to being, go. Uh, to being taught by a master, a new master. Find, find yourself a new master uh -huh. who you trust and uh, let go into the practice. Do what they say to do. Yeah. Um, An important part of... Right, without questioning tradition. it so much. You know, submit. Yeah. It's, it's submission. It's not subjugation. That's right. It's yeah. not... It's chosen, and and a good master understands the power of that and never abuses it. Of course, and yep. there's the dog again. There's no, the dog. Please, one second. Hold on. Sure, no problem. 
as we like to do in a swift kick in the soul is be honest with our listeners I'm, <laughs> yeah where we are i'm uh, house sitting like four cats right now and, and a uh, dog. have a dog in here so it's a it's a full house, full a animal sweet house in here dog <laughs> okay yes he is um Look, I only want to say a little bit more, which is um, to encourage people who are listening to um, uh, be inheritors of of your tradition. Learn your craft. Uh, Find a good teacher and submit to their learning. Uh, Don't question every little thing. Uh, Be deeply, deeply rooted in the tradition which you are trying to innovate and which you're trying to make your own. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably somebody who wants to be better, mm-hmm. who wants to have a, a richer, deeper experience in your religious or spiritual practice or get better on your musical instrument or in your martial arts practice. And so I would say um, uh, uh, become deeply rooted. It's the defining uh, element of success is, is to be uh, steeped within the tradition. And then, then you're in a position where you can jump higher, where you can reach within your tradition for something that is really yours, that both ties you to the past and allows you to move freely and in a liberated way into a future that connects Connects. what comes beyond you with what came before you. I think if you do that, uh, you'll succeed in your art, in your craft, in your religious life. And I I think you will uh, be more at one with that great flow, which which we call God and time and all things. Mm. Uh, There we are. There we are. Beautiful. Thanks. Well, that was an incredible discussion. Um, I, uh, I can't wait for the next one. This has been a swift kick in the soul with... Hello, Nori. Thank you, Marshall. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I guess we'll see you next time. 